Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, and I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. Dear 20-something started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful woman they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts we process internally, Dear 20-something is a space where listeners can hear insights, ask questions, and ultimately get advice from the woman they most admire. Today on the show, I am extremely excited to be chatting with Melissa Rivers. New York Times bestselling author and award-winning producer, Melissa is an entertainment journalist and correspondent, an equestrian, fun fact, an Ivy League graduate, an accomplished public speaker, and an animal advocate. While her professional accomplishments are plentiful, it is her role as a single parent to her son, Cooper, that Melissa calls her greatest accomplishment. As co-creator, executive producer, and co-host of E's wildly successful Fashion Police, Melissa shared with viewers her candor, quick wit, and meticulous eye for fashion, which she honed throughout her years covering the red carpet. Melissa also starred opposite her mother, Joan Rivers, during four seasons of WeTV's hit reality series, series, Joan and Melissa, Joan Knows Best. As co-creator, executive producer, and co-host of Ease, Melissa remains an in-demand speaker and lecturer and is the New York Times bestselling author of both Joan Rivers Confidential, the unseen scrapbooks, joke cards, personal files, and photos of a very funny woman who kept everything, and The Book of Joan, Tales of Mirth, Mischief, and Manipulation. Melissa continues to co-manage the Joan Rivers Classics Collection on QVC with business partner David Dangle, as well as develop the myriad projects she and her mother created together. A philanthropist and an advocate, Melissa ardently supports a number of charitable causes, including PETA, the Elizabeth Glazer Pediatric AIDS Foundation, the Entertainment Industries Council, our House, Grief Support Center, and Dee Dee Hirsch Mental Health Services. Melissa has received distinguished accolades and awards from both Our House and Dee Dee Hirsch Mental Health Services for her openness in discussing the suicide of her father, Edgar Rosenberg, and for addressing with honesty, dignity, and respect the subjects of death and grieving. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome the one and only Melissa Rivers. Hi. So before we dive into your 20s, which I've you know shared as like the root of this show, I do just want to start with like a fun and light question. What is something new that you learned in this past week? It could be a book you read, maybe some art you saw, or a conversation you had, or yeah, an interesting fact that you learned from this past week. I'm not sure what I learned, but I found something really touching that I was kind of taken back by how touched I was by a whole situation and really something that made me really emotional was watching. I don't know if anyone's been watching the Olympics. Yeah, religiously to watch the whole skating thing and the girl that won the gold medal literally sitting by herself. And you had one teammate that had all the scandal and she was crying hysterically. And then the other one that was pissed off because she hasn't won a major event and was losing it and I'm not going out there. And then the one from South Korea who was just so overcome and just sobbing with joy. And my heart broke for the girl who won the gold medal sitting there literally by herself for a ridiculous amount of time. So I'm not sure I learned anything, but it was a very unexpected emotional moment for me. Like I just wanted to reach through and say, hey, it's going to be okay. But also I really had this very visceral reaction where I wanted to turn around to the coaches and say, yeah, the other one's in trouble. The other one's sobbing. 
just for a minute, tell this girl, congratulations. I was really shocked at what a strong emotional response I had to it. You know, I'm right there with you. I've been obsessed with the Olympics and I felt so heartbroken for, like you said, all those reasons. The way every single Russian girl in that moment acted was heartbreaking. And I do think a lot is to blame on the coaches. Like you mentioned that, but it's like, how do you create a culture where this is the reaction? And the gold medal winner apparently said she felt empty inside when she won. Well, because there was no focus on here. There was no, I mean, if you go back and look at the clips, she's sitting in what they call the kiss and cry by herself, just literally alone. I know. It's heartbreaking. I know. And it's just so hard because when you really think about it too, these are like very young girls. And like so often a lot of the feelings they have and decisions that are made are not their own. It's really just projected on from the adults in their life. And even the doping thing, it's like those were the adults in her life that didn't protect her and like got her involved in this horrible, awful, heartbreaking thing. So yeah, I know I'm right there with you. It also affected me a lot. And like, I I'm still piecing together what I learned too from that, but I'm glad you're watching. I feel like anyone would like pay a million bucks to just sit and listen to your commentary on that. You'll do what you want, but like there's maybe a world where you do a TikTok series where you're just commenting on the Olympic. I mean, I would love to watch that. That sounds fun. Yeah. And I'm an avid skier. Oh, really? I've been watching a ton of that, but I've somehow gotten really obsessed with the bobsledding. I can't decide if it's like something that you're like, oh, that'd be so cool to try or you couldn't pay me enough to try. Yeah, I think it seems very scary. That's my whole thing. They're just, they're going so fast. Like you don't even realize how fast unless you're actually doing it. And when you look at the miles per hour on the screen, it's like, I can't even imagine actually being in like a very small confined split space going that fast. But on the other hand, is it just like a giant- Roller coaster. Rush. I wouldn't want to drive. I'd be the brake man like crouched behind. (laughs) Yeah, just like praying we make it. Well, that's awesome. Well, I'm glad you're watching. You know, you're always like on the cultural trend. So that makes a lot of sense. And I think we obviously send our love to the girls over in Russia. And hopefully uh, that all gets sorted. Definitely heartbreaking though. And thank you for sharing that. Oh, and speaking of 20-somethings, how awesome for that girl who was 25 and ended up like 10 for the US. What about a I'm never going to give up attitude? I love that. There's a lot of those. The Sean Whites and like some of these, Lindsay Jacob Ellis is another one. Like, I love it. I know. It brings, it's like the best of humanity, you know? Like you're really rooting for the people that are that have been there, done that, are still working at it. So I completely agree. All righty. Well, we'll get started. We're obviously going to dive into your 20s, but I do think a lot of that needs to start with your childhood and just having some context as we go through. You obviously had a very exciting childhood. Joan Rivers as a mother. Very fun. A lot of people are very jealous. So I guess we'll start with like when you were younger. You obviously had this like mom who was a powerful media personality. What did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? Well, what's interesting and what people don't know is I had a very traditional childhood. My parents were very, very clear on that there's a huge difference between the public persona and who we are at home. And those lines were very, very clear. So I think people kind of misunderstand sort of what my childhood was like. My parents were very much, I know we're not allowed to have this anymore, but had expectations as opposed to meet them, (laughs) which thankfully I did. But it's really interesting because, you know, now with parenting and not so much with my son, but this next generation, like you weren't allowed to have any expectations and everybody's a winner and all of that kind of stuff. So I came from a very traditional childhood, very traditional to the point that up until the time my mom died, my friends referred to her as Mrs. Rosenberg or Mrs. R. So 
you know, I think once you'll understand that, what did I want to be? See, here's the thing also though, on the flip side, because my parents wanted to be available and home and have much more uh, normal home life, their offices, 90% of the time, they worked out of our house. So I was so immersed in the business that when I got to school, I decided when I got to college, I'm like, you know what? I don't want this anymore. I'm going to break out and do something different. And my genius ideas were advertising or marketing because it's just so radically different than the entertainment business. And then I woke up one day and I was watching TV with one of my friends and someone was on TV and they're like, oh my God, I love her. She's so nice. Or someone was on the cover of a magazine. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this person is a horrible human being can't stand them if anybody only knew it. And that's when I sort of realized if I ever wanted to be able to even just like watch TV, read a magazine, go to a movie again, I'm going to have to stay on in the business because I already realized then I knew too much and I could never enjoy anything like that. Just sort of untainted. Yeah. And also from like an advertising standpoint, like sometimes it is sort of like rose colored glasses, looking at the best sides of things. And you're like, I know what I can see right through this. Like, I know who you are. I know what you're like, like, this isn't going to fly with me. And you're almost like, you're not gullible. Like everyone else is gullible. And you're just like, no, I've seen things. I grew up in this industry. I know. There's a number of actors and actresses who publicly are like beloved and America's, you know, loves you and the girl next door and, oh, he's the best guy. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, so not. Yeah, and you had that visibility because you know you grew up the way that you did. So I just figured there was no way I was ever going to be able to like enjoy any kind of entertainment unless I was a part of it. So when you were growing up, you obviously shared like you know there was this like very traditional element to your how you were raised. Was there and you said obviously there were expectations, which amazing, you know. But was there an expectation of what kind of career you would have? You know, not at all. It was whatever you want to do. They actually did not want me to go into the entertainment business. And it's not that they weren't supportive. They were supportive, but did not encourage. They were very honest. I had grown up in seeing what a difficult business it is and how brutal it is. And they always remind me it's a business, no matter how big you get, it's a constant rejection. It does not matter if you are the biggest star. There's maybe three or four women, maybe three or four men that sort of get offered everything first. And other than that, you have these people who are these major movie stars or TV stars, and you realize you're not anybody's first choice. It has nothing to do with the level of success and things like that. It's just, you have to be prepared to sort of live and die by the sword. Absolutely. And I think what's interesting too is like, the acting element is only one part of the entertainment industry. If we think about it, there's hosting, which you've done so well. There's the producing, there's the fashion, you know, police, like there's all these different other elements, the writers, and those are even harder because those are all behind the scenes. And there's some people competing for those roles too. So they didn't have expectations for you, but you knew you wanted to do well. They expected that you were going to work hard. Your friends called them Mr. and Mrs. R. And then, you know, you, like you mentioned, you went off to college and you thought marketing or advertising, which is hilarious. Can you tell me a little bit more about your college experience? I know you went to UPenn. Could you tell me a little bit about why you chose that school, how you liked it? And then I know you ended up majoring in something very different than marketing and advertising. So can you tell me a little bit more about your major as well? Yes. So I got into Penn and it was the best school I got into. So 
off I went. Again, now everybody's like, well, it's not a match or they're not happy or it's not their first choice. My parents are like, that's the best school you got into. That's where you're going. Again, it was just a very different time with that. So that I was actually a history major, specifically European history. I was like, how would you pick that? And when it was time to really declare your major, I was going to do an independent major in marketing and arts management. I don't know. So like it was going to make sense. And my father passed away right before the beginning of my junior year. And I'm like, this is too much. I can't figure this out. I can't be dealing with major advisors and stuff like that. And I sat down with my academic advisor and we looked at all the classes and I had a ton towards being a history major. Just because you'd already taken those classes, you thought they were interesting? Yeah, exactly. It was stuff I was interested in. So I'm like, okay, I guess I'm a history major. (laughs) And I loved being a history major. I loved it. My whole life, I'm most fascinated in books that are nonfiction. I do not read a lot of fiction. Everyone's like, have you read this novel? I'm like, no. So it sort of did fit into the wheelhouse of things that I was really interested in. I love that. And it's this idea too, like when you experience something really traumatic, you just kind of like make it work. And what you were like, I'm not even gonna put in the effort to figure this out. Like, what do I already have in the bank? What is like doable, like, and somewhat enjoyable to just graduate? You know, sometimes that's the attitude is it's like, right now, career's on the back burner. I kind of got to deal with what's in front of me and just make it work. Exactly. And that was, I was like, oh, I already have more credits towards that than anything else. Okay, I guess I'm a history major. Let's go. It's funny because I never really thought about it until you just said it. Obviously, I liked history because I had taken enough classes. A quick question, favorite nonfiction book. Do you have one that stands out as someone who's clearly the uh, expert? There's so many. I just finished one called The Star Machine, which was very interesting. I'm also a huge fan of old Hollywood and have read all the books on the studio system and watched all the movies and done all that. And this is a book that basically walks you through using certain people's careers of how the studios created these stars. Good title. The Star Machine. I just finished it. It's really interesting. It was one of those ones where you're like, no, I don't want it to end. By the way, it's not exactly deep. It's a fun, interesting read kind of thing. I love that. It sounds like it also kind of combines a few of your interests, you know, like obviously the entertainment thing, history, nonfiction. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, of course I've read like all the heavy duty history of this and history of that. That one just recently, I'm just like, it was just fun. You know, we're living in such dramatic times. And I think so much of our emotional energy is so spent by the end of a day that I'm like in this thing, like, I don't want to read anything heavy. I don't want to watch anything sad. I only want to watch things that are like, or read things that are entertaining and light I don't need to go on any sort of major emotional journeys right now watching TV or watching a movie or reading. You know, we have enough of that every day right now. Completely agree. It's funny you say that because when I think about what is that thing that was fun to like come home to and watch, it's Fashion Police. Like it's what you guys built was like, if you think about it, it's like the light, fun, guilty pleasure type TV. And like, you know, it's, it's needed now more than ever, that type of just like light, enjoyable, indulgent stuff. And I will just say on a personal note, like I'm very impressed with your passion for European history. AP European history was like the death of me. And I still hear my son's school, they called it a push. And by the way, like I have PTSD from it as a parent. 
Yeah. So does my mom. I mean, like it was horrifying. So to hear you talk about like willingly choosing this as your major and exploring it, I mean, bow down to you. I could never do that. And But it's all about what you find interesting. And we're also all so different. It's so different on a college level because you're doesn't have the same pressure. You're not trying to cram in everything in this very condensed amount of time. You know, I thought my son's head was going to explode during AP Dev. He's like, I can't remember all this. That's very interesting. Thank you for sharing all that. So we know you major in European history at Penn, but there wasn't, from my understanding, wasn't really like a desire to ever pursue that professionally. Just like we said, it was sort of like what you had the credits for. But once you graduated, you were like, it's time to do the acting thing. Can you talk to me a little bit about your mindset? What were those first steps you took right after graduating? And then when you realized like you wanted to pursue the acting bug? Right after school, I'm like, what, you know, what am I going to do? I'm starting, I'd already had a bunch of internships. I was starting to interview for jobs. And at that point, I thought I wanted to potentially act. And that's, I still do. And I do take some small jobs along the way, but I'm at an interesting crossroads where people always still see me as me. And a lot of people say it's my voice, which is weird. But I auditioned, for those of you in New York, Neighborhood Playhouse. And I got accepted into their program with a very famous acting teacher named Sandy Meisner. So I'm like, you know, this opportunity to study with Sandy doesn't come along. And he has since passed away. He was already very, very old then. So I was doing that as well as working as a, I'd gotten my first sort of real job as a research assistant, not even a researcher, a research assistant on an old show called Rescue 911, which was the first real reenactment show. So I was research assistant by day and learning, producing and all that. And then at night going to my acting classes and doing, go, you know, luckily they let me go for some auditions and stuff like that. But it was really hitting the grind on that and doing what I had to do. And I booked some stuff, but I got finally got promoted to researcher from research assistant. Congratulations. Big jumps. Baby steps. And then I kept climbing the ladder. And at one point, I was still auditioning and getting jobs here and getting jobs there and trying to balance it all and not lose my job and what a lot of people go through. And then I got a call to find out if I would be interested in screen testing for MTV. And I thought, that's not what I want to do. Oh, no, no, no. So I'm like, well, I'm going to do it. And I ended up getting the job. And that was uh, the beginning of the end. <laughs> or just the beginning. It's still going. Or just the beginning. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's so good. And you you told me there's a phrase that, you know, you had growing up that, you know, go through whatever doors open. Would you mind telling me a little bit about that? Because I think that's so powerful. Even if an opportunity that presents itself isn't something you had seen yourself doing originally, hosting, for example, doing some of them TV. Like, can you tell me a little bit more about how you think about opportunities based on how you were raised? You know, and it, it was something my parents said, you don't know where any door is going to lead to. It might not be the door that you are envisioning walking through. But if it's a step forward, you don't know where that's going to take you. Life is really a maze is sort of how I think about it. Sometimes you're going to make a left and walk right into a wall and you have to backtrack and then you know to turn right. And it's just working your way through. And my parents are always like, you go through whatever door opens. And if you can't get through a door, go through a window. And you just keep working. 
because you don't know, you know, I went from MTV to CBS News. Then I was down to, it was down to me and Ricky Lake for what became the Ricky Lake show. Then I did a pilot for my own show and that didn't pan out. And then I did a bunch of other stuff and then suddenly E comes along and you just don't know. I never would have thought I would have a podcast. And now look forward to the days that we tape the podcast. I didn't think I would have my fourth book coming out. It's nothing I ever thought. But you go through the doors that open. Because, you know, again, life is fascinating. You don't know where it's going to take you. I love that. That's so powerful. Yeah. And big congrats on the book and the podcast. We're going to definitely get into that too, because I know everyone wants want to be checking that out after we're done. You really don't know where life is going to take you. And like you said, you took that MTV opportunity and the rest is history. Can you tell me a little bit about how you liked it? And, you know, for those of you who don't know too, Sandy Meisner, I did some of my own digging too. And he basically created like method acting and, and he's trained Diane Keaton and Jack Nicholson, some of these insane people. So did that play into your, you think, success, you know, doing a lot of the hosting stuff and working with MTV and, and the rest of your career? Well, one of the big things and I, because of MTV and stuff like that, I didn't finish the whole program with Sandy because I started working full time. But he has this very famous technique and it's called, or this thing that you do called the knock at the door. And whenever you're entering a scene, answering the door, you have an intention. So when you knock on the door, your character has an intention already or an emotion already. And for me, I've translated that into being present and listening. And I think that's what makes me a good interviewer. It served me very well on the red carpet, especially live, is I could be in the moment and listening and picking up on cues. You know, in the beginning of every interview, basically you're opening the door. So, To be able to do that and listen and not just be thinking about the next question is a huge skill. And to do it live is a different skill set. It's something you learn. You know, you're not born with it. But I think that's what I really took away from Sandy was everyone's coming from somewhere. Whoever's knocking on the door is coming from somewhere. And whoever's listening or opening the door is also coming from somewhere. I love that. That's super powerful. And that, like you said, carries throughout your whole life. And it's kind of like that original thing you were saying, you don't know where every opportunity is going to lead. And you couldn't have known that what was the best thing to come out of this, you know, workshop, even if you didn't complete it, was this intentional piece, this showing up, this knock at the door philosophy. And then, I mean, even now as a podcaster, I'm sure you lean on that. And that's, you know, all these years later. So it's cool to see how you never know what you're going to get from these opportunities. And they all, they all stack up. You never know. And you never know what you're going to call on later in life. Yeah. And even like being a podcast host now, I mean, imagine like there's people from earlier in your career that you're able to call up and be like, hey, let's chat about that. And like, it's still adding value even, you know, years later. And I'm still very good friends with a couple of people that I was in class with for a year and a half. Yeah. See, even that, I think like separate from an experience, like the relationships sometimes are even valuable enough, you know, like even let's say you learned absolutely nothing. The people you can carry with you are, are really, really special. So how did you like hosting? I mean, I know it went well. Did you feel like you had found your calling? Did you feel like when you first started or was it like, I'm anxious, this is hard. And I say that because like going live and interviewing people, that's not easy. When I first started doing this stuff, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I don't know if this is for me. I don't know if I like this. And with time, it kind of became more comfortable. But 
How did that transition work for you? Did you kind of know right away, like, this is my calling and this is my space? Or did it kind of take some time and getting used to? I don't think I've even, I'm not sure I've found my calling. <laughs> Other than staying till nine, making sure I stay up till 9.30 at night before I actually wash my face and get into bed. So I'm not, you know, shaming myself. <laughs> Again, everything's hard in the beginning. Something like you can get it. You can realize that I can do this. I really have a passion for life. And I don't know if it's because it's the adrenaline of you have to do this right and you got to do it right now. Or the fact which I love, which was once it was done, it was done and you had to move forward. You know, I now when I'm on set doing something or doing an interview or on a show, I'm like, oh my God, I can't keep going backwards and doing it again and again and again and again. And I find that very difficult. And I think in the way it's hurt me is when you're doing like stand-ups, meaning, you know, the reading and the in-between, the we'll be back and the coming up. If I don't get it right by the second try, I'm like ready to rip my hair out and start apologizing because I am so programmed that you got to do it right. My first or second take will always be the best one. Because once we hit do it again, I start to get frustrated. So that's not a great thing, but I love the excitement of life. I love the unpredictability. I mean, you would walk off those red carpets, you know, I would, or my mom and I would, and literally be exhausted after two hours or two and a half hours because you have to be so focused. Yeah. And you have to know a lot of information. Like as people are coming down, you got to like, okay, what are these people's like, what did they just release? Like, what are they after? And like, make sure you know it right there. Huge research notebooks, but we also had producers with cards. And a lot of people, some people are like, I just hate holding the card or I want it to look like I don't need the card. It's like, we all know that you just saw the card. You know, nobody's just pulling this out of the back are they telling you in your ear? Let's not pretend any of us are geniuses. But, and so much of it, I got to tell you live, is having faith in your team. And for me, it's like you get very attached to your producer that makes it go well for you because you know each other's rhythms. I always liked them passing the card to me when someone was two away underneath. So whoever I was talking to, I could just drop the top card and the next one was right on top. Now, at the of every show, I was standing in a sea of cars. But you find what works for you. I had to have mine kept coming up from the bottom so I could just chuck them as I was done with them. Yeah, you figure out your tips and tricks. You figure it out. And, you know, with live, especially, you have to have a strong team. Yeah, I think what's really interesting too about live, it's less likely to be so filtered. I think now with obviously like social media and companies doing press releases and everything is so perfectly curated. There's something really nice in the nature that you just talk and it's just who you really are and it isn't so crafted. And I think, I mean, when I personally think about you and I think about your mom, especially, I think what was so beautiful about what you guys contributed was this like lack of filter and it was always classy and it was always funny and it was always thoughtful, but it was this like very honest way of saying things and this like, yeah, because it was live. And I think that that was something that really stands out that especially you two did was like you created, I don't know, commentary that really was like 
live and real. And everyone knew it wasn't, you know, pre-programmed. It was just what you were thinking in the moment. And, you know, our whole thing was, my whole thing was always, if I'm not having fun, the, the viewers aren't having fun. And celebrities had fun with us because also in the day, we were the only live ones. So they'd be like wanting to stop to say hi to like, hi, my aunt, so-and-so's watching in Columbus. Hi, you know, so it became like a sort of destination for them as well. So, I mean, you're very kind to say classy because it wasn't always. Yeah, I think there was, it definitely seemed that way. I'll just say that as a viewer. I know there were comments that were like, oh gosh, but it was never in, intended to be dig, I don't think. No, and it was fun. And our whole thing was fun. And the red carpets are not fun anymore. No one's allowed to have fun. That's for sure. Fun is the enemy. Everyone has to be so correct and so buttoned up and not in a good way. You know, I have an idea. Take it or leave it. I think we need you on red carpets doing a live fireside show. We bring back the fun. We bring back the unfiltered. I'm just saying. I think there's there's room there. I agree. There's a white space. But the problem is, you know, I got quoted as saying that the red carpet wasn't dead, but it, it was almost dead. Mostly it was just on life support. I don't think everyone is so scared right now that they're going to say something wrong or something is going to be taken out of context and everybody's so guarded that you can't, I don't know if anybody would be comfortable doing that anymore or would it just be super stiff? It's sad. Or you'd at least try to be that voice that encourages it, you know, and you'd see, and maybe it doesn't, it flops. Right. You never know, but it would be fun to try. It would be. And I think maybe I've been surprised by the number of people that yes, while they're scared, they also are craving like vulnerability and authenticity. And I think that's why like, maybe worth a shot. Okay, well, I did want to ask you, just kind of jumping to the present, I know you have a 20-something son yourself. Would you mind telling me a little bit more about like what kinds of advice you give him now? I mean, I know like it's a different generation. You talked about how you grew up in a very traditional environment and now it's very no expectations. Everyone gets a trophy. Like what's been your like philosophy for him? And like as he enters this next phase in his 20s, like what do you hope he learns? I try and, and make him, one of the things we've been working on is thinking things through before making a decision, especially with big decisions, to stop, to talk it out, to not make snap decisions. So we've been working a lot. We've been talking about that a lot. He actually came to me for advice and he called me like at 11, 15 at night. And I saw the phone. I thought it was him. So of course, the first thing I said was, what's wrong? What happened? Are you okay? Because why would he be calling me at that time? And he actually wanted, he needed advice and he wanted to talk something through. He's always been very, very sensitive and very empathetic. So it's about maintaining that character trait and keeping that, even though sometimes it's hard not to be completely self-absorbed. And he's not a self-absorbed guy. You know, about being a good person, about giving back, about always trying to take, see the forest before you see the trees. And once you understand the trees, you can go back to the forest. It's about really trying to see all those things. I love that you also encourage him to talk through his emotions and that you see his empathy and sensitivity and you encourage that because I think I'm kind of a walking advertisement for this book called Untamed by Glennon Doyle. I don't know if you've read it. I would really recommend it. She has an amazing section on raising boys and she's an incredible author and she talks about how important it is to talk about your emotions and support that in the men you raise. But I, I really appreciate you saying that. And I think that's great advice and stuff that we don't hear all the time. Like, don't shove it down, you know? Yeah, the other thing that we really talk about is keep your side of the street clean. 
always think about your responsibility. If something doesn't go well or isn't going the way you want it to, even if you're, I hate the word victim, even if you've done nothing wrong, think about your responsibility in even creating the situation. Yeah, I love that. And I think more people need to do that, especially in their 20s. Extreme ownership, take your own responsibility. Well, on that note, obviously this is advice you're giving to your son. He's at a specific age in his life and he's a male. So maybe it's a little different. The, the question we ask all our guests, and, and this is my, my final question for you, is just what piece of advice would you give to all 20-somethings? If you could say one thing, what would that one piece of advice be? Even though you're starting to have responsibilities, enjoy the lack of responsibility. Enjoy it. You're young and you're having fun. And even if things are horrible, try and find a way to to enjoy it. Enjoy your knees not hurting. (laughs) Yeah, that's more practical advice. Appreciate your knees. Well, thank you so much, Melissa. This has been so fun. I mean, we could talk on and on about what a cool and winding path you've had. Before we dive into the Q&A, I do just want to take a second and talk about your book and podcast, because like you said, fourth book, incredible. And your podcast, would you mind just telling everyone a little bit about like what the book is about, when it's coming out? And then I'd love to know also about your podcast so we can all tune in. Absolutely. The book is called Lies My Mother Told Me. Oh my God, that's good title. Tall Tales from a Very Short Woman. And it's satire. It is on the cover. It says a work of nonfiction with the word non scratched out. And it's just stories that I think my mother would tell. You know, we cover every all these big historical things. There's a whole chapter about the fact that Marie Antoinette got beheaded because the whole French Revolution was started because she cut bangs and was upset and didn't like them and mumbled something about cake. And next thing you know, not good. <laughs> So it's a lot of very, you know, her version or her imagined version of the first Thanksgiving. The Pilgrims were very bad guests. They moved the place cards. Nobody appreciates that. They probably didn't look very cute either. Their outfits probably weren't very nice. Well, they came over dressed, which always as a host makes you feel bad because you know that they're going somewhere else after. Yeah, fair point. So it's stories like that. You know, it wasn't the last supper. It was the last brunch. So, you know, you look in the background, it's daylight. So it's a really fun, silly, light read that will make people laugh because it's just absurd. And it's all about enjoying, like you said, like pick it up, laugh. I will just, I have to point out that you mentioned Marie Antoinette and we talked about European history and like it keeps popping up. I'm just saying you are a history buff. It's just, that's you. You love it. Exactly. And the book is available for pre-order now and Nowadays, it's all a whole different thing. And it's all based on your pre-orders, not your actual sales. So I need everybody to pre-order. Perfect. And is that Amazon or should they go to your website? Amazon. Lies my mother told me. Perfect. Amazon. And then we'll also link that in the show notes for everyone who's listening on the podcast format. So you guys can grab that. And then your podcast. Got to hear more about this. You taking your interviewing and hosting to the next phase, this next format. Melissa Rivers group text. I talk to a lot of celebrities. I interview a lot of really interesting people. And it's just people that I want to talk to. Sometimes we do topics, not always. We've been on a big celebrity role. I always love talking to the makers of documentaries. I just, this week was, uh, it just comes out today, actually. W. Kamau Bell, who hosts uh, United States of America. 
and it just did a brand new documentary on Bill Cosby. That's fascinating. Okay, great. Yeah, I love documentaries too. I watched one last night called Found. Have you seen Found? No, is it good? Oh my gosh. I was a wreck. It's about three girls that were adopted from China and they do 23andMe and they find out they're all first cousins like, and they live in America. And then they go to China and like try to find their birth parents and their nannies. And you learn just a lot more about like that, you know, that period of time where they had that one child policy and like how many people really were adopted from China. So it's beautiful. It's on Netflix found. I would recommend as well. Yeah. And we need to talk about Cosby is on Showtime. And then I started another one last night that I can't remember for the life of me. Eh, It'll come to me. Perfect. Well, thank you for the recommendations. And yeah, we'll also link the group text podcast. Alrighty, well, now it's time for the Q&A portion of our show. Deanna. I am here. I have uh, kids. I'm the same age as you. My kids are a little bit older than yours. But what are some things that living in this day and age, the way society is, I know you said your son is sensitive. What are things that you are telling him to guide him through our times right now? It's hard. You know, everything, and I'm sure you know this, it's very much sort of, situational things, but in the sense of his empathy, you know, again, I just keep going back to saying you have to understand someone else's point of view and you can agree with it. You can disagree with it, but you have to allow them be polite enough to allow them to have it. And I think he agrees with me that things have gone really, really over the top and you can sort of dislike where things are headed I know there's certain things I do, but it's about keeping a level of respect. Whether you think it's wrong or you think it's right, you have to be respectful. I mean, I agree with that. People are easily offended. And I think that that level has gotten off the charts. It's insane, but that doesn't give you the right to be disrespectful to someone. You can disagree, but you don't get to be disrespectful. Thanks, Deanna. Great advice, Melissa. Let's see. Okay, great. Let me grab the next speaker. Chris. Hi, this is Chris Rossetti in San Francisco. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak. Great interview. My question is this, Melissa. I was very close to my mother, and after she passed, I loved listening occasionally to recorded voice messages she left on my phone just to hear her voice. I was curious, do you ever do that? Just watch interviews or discussions you and your mom had in the past just to be reminded of the good times? No. I don't. I hear her voice in my head, whether I want to or not. (laughs) Literally, some days I'm like, oh my God, stop. So I don't feel like I need to go back and review (laughs) her actual voice. Do I take the time to remember things? Absolutely. You have to keep perspective. You have to keep memories alive. And it's always hard in the beginning and eventually everything becomes kind of bittersweet. But I was just laughing telling stories with a friend of mine. You know, my family, everything was about laughing. So we were telling stories about something ridiculous that my mom did and just for howling with laughter. And I think that's the best way to honor her and honor our memory. And she gave a lot of advice, not always asked for, but I've seemed to have kept the good and the jettison the bad, which is what I hope we all all do. I love that. You're so lucky too that her voice is right there and fresh in your mind, you know? So you don't need to do that. Like you've got her right there if you want her. Have you ever listened to my mother's voice? Yeah, hard to forget. (laughs) It's not exactly dulcet tones. (laughs) That is very true. Very true. Well, Melissa, this has been so much fun. Thanks for coming on. 
This has been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this has been so great. Thank you everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20 Something, anywhere you get podcasts. And again, Melissa's got her fourth book coming out and her group text podcast. So give it a listen. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks, Erica. Thanks, Erica.